it's not that you have to keep your mouth shut on everything, but you got to know where to do it. You will have a board-certified ER doc at your beck and call instantly by pushing the buzzer on the wall. If it can get screwed up, it will get screwed up. You know, I don't want them stopping for a cheeseburger if what I think they need is to have their appendix out. Hello, boys and girls. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry. I know we're a little late. It is actually June 4th. We're recording the uh, May issue. Rick, we're not a little late. We're late. (laughs) So let me step forward and say most of this is my fault. Um, I, um, I was in the hospital. I've gotten out of the hospital. And just to let you know, while I was encephalopathic in the hospital, Rick came to visit me. Rick, I, uh, I can't tell you how touched I was that you flew all this way to see little old me. And I'm, uh, I'm grateful that you showed up. Well, you know, actually, uh, we're, we, are, we are buds. And, uh, yes. you know, I was, we were all a little concerned uh, while you were experimenting with the uh, medical industrial complex there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I did fly out. Uh, actually, I had a great flight. It was on Delta. Uh, there's nonstop. You have a fabulous airport. Uh, considering the city is in deterioration, your airport is beautiful. And it was like a half hour drive to from Detroit to Ann Arbor, a, a totally different world. And I got to tell you, uh, you were in a really, really big hospital. Uh, yeah. We don't have those kind of hospitals around here. We have like little hospitals every block or so. But, but you were in a, a teaching hospital. And I learned some things. Uh, I, I learned that uh, all the residents now are wheeling around these mobile computers on which they chart. Uh, their their hospital devices. The nurses have the same thing, and I walked down your hall, and on one side of the hall were three students and residents, and on the other side was the attending, and he had his, and they had theirs, and it was like the little ducks with the attending duck, and uh, these devices. It's like I I I asked them if I could take a picture of them because I said this is where medicine has gone now. We've got, yes. you know, exactly was, right. God. And of course, every morning I conducted rounds and <laughs> on was, yourself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And they, they thought I was the biggest pain in the ass, whoever existed, but, uh, they did eventually kick me out. And, uh, so to all of our listeners, if I don't sound my usual, um, uh, chipper self, it's, uh, at, uh, eight grams of hemoglobin. You're never quite as, as perky as you'd like. Well, listen, I think your chipper index is around 98%. You're doing just fine. Thank you. Whether you can last for 75 minutes is another question. Well, that's, you know, I I see the oxygen bottle in the back there. Uh, you know, we're doing this over Skype and, uh, Marjean is probably at the ready, you know, with the car yeah. that pulled up to the front door of your office if you get into trouble. Anyway. Yeah, well, it, it, was, it should be noted that while I was in the hospital, not only did my kids come home because uh, they frightened the hell out of them and they thought they ought to show up. So my kids came home at their expense, 
which was terrific. Oh. Uh, and uh, my wife and I celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary <laughs> while I'm uh, undergoing care by the urologist. And there's got to be something <laughs> Uh, there's got to be something significant here, Rick. <laughs> no, congratulations. The idea of being married 50 years is extraordinary, and it is a particularly extraordinary to be married for 50 years to the same person. Well, you know, you realize in the state of Michigan, I'd only done 20 years if I'd killed her. <laughs> no, no. You do that joke all the time. Uh, you know, that's, that's not, it's considered very inappropriate, doctor. Uh, anybody who thinks that, you know, wants to censure him, you got to realize his brain is not being saturated with enough oxygen right now because of his hemoglobin capacity. So right. uh, we're, that is the standing excuse, and we're going to stick stick by it. All right, okay. let's get started here, Chief. Um, I wanted to do this thing about the new California homeless law that becomes effective July uh, of this year, which is, I think, in about a day or two, given the fact yep. how late we are. But in any case, uh, we are the center of uh, homelessness. Yeah, there's a lot of it on the West Coast, and it's scattered here and there. I know, I know that. Seattle's got a big problem, but a third of yeah. all the homeless in the uh, U.S. are in California. It's estimated. Go ahead, Greg. You, no, uh, let's I, let, let, let stop for one second. You understand? Have you ever been in like northern Montana in the winter, Rick? Well, no, they don't have any homeless. That's why there is no homeless in North Well, I don't Montana. think I don't think you have any homeless. I didn't see any homeless when I was in Ann Arbor. You know, it's it's, it's a thing called winter. Yeah, we have homeless, but 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 they're called you know graduate students and things like that. Uh, now we've 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 got some, but you're right. When you live in paradise, uh, which a lot of California is. They a lot of people want to come there, and you know you can be homeless at fifty degrees. You can't be homeless <laughs> at zero degrees. I well, promise you, know, you that. I uh, recently went downtown, and uh, it is it is truly shocking uh, what's gone gone on. I don't want to get into the, a lot of the details, but it is estimated that. They got twenty eight thousand in San Francisco. Fifty five thousand two hundred is the estimate of people living on the streets in Southern California. I know for a fact that one billion dollars thereabouts—that's what they say the number is—was spent last year on the homeless problem. And I did the math. If you divide a billion into fifty two thousand two hundred people. We should be writing a check to eight, each one of them for $18,115.94. And we still cannot solve this problem. There's all kinds of issues about, you know, their property and uh, their, their, their rights. And um, we uh, appear to be immobilized. We cannot build housing fast enough for them. A lot of them, honestly, don't seem to want housing. You know, we had the Reagan years where all of these folks were who were institutionalized, were put out on the streets for the uh, community to handle. Well, you can see how the community's handling them. Well, anyway, let me get into this law. And you jump in here right. anytime you want because yep. I'm going to carry you this issue. You know, you usually carry me. I'm going to carry you. 
So just, just <laughs> chime in here when you want. Okay. So the hospitals now must have a policy regarding the discharge of homeless patients. And this policy must include, number one, a written plan to coordinate with all 25 homeless services that are out there that look at uh, social services and uh, uh, health care agencies and behavioral health organizations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Number two, you have to offer a, 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 the patient a meal, and uh, they don't specify whether what the uh, food groups need to be. You know, we're in the ketogenic diet thing right now. Right, exactly. Uh, weather appropriate clothing. Now stop. Weather it's, appropriate. It's cheap in California to give weather appropriate <laughs> clothing because you only vary like 10 degrees. <laughs> if if you're in a place like Michigan, you got to get them down jackets and all that kind of stuff. No, but they, you know, but they may say, you know, I'm not interested in those Bermuda shorts. Those are out of style. I want the cargo pants. Right, um, right, right. You got to give any needed medications. Uh, if the hospital has a retail pharmacy, there are some laws about dispensing if you don't have a pharmacy. Offer immunizations and screening for infectious diseases. There's a big outbreak of uh, typhus, scrub typhus and that kind of typhus from fleas and rats and the stuff like that. Uh, you have to transport patients to the discharge destination uh, if it's within 30 miles or within 30 minutes. Now, at 5 o'clock in, Cal in Los Angeles, you can't... You you can go about two blocks in thirty minutes, so you'd be driving right. them about two blocks uh, away, and you can't take them across state lines. <laughs> That's, that well, is, the that last is... thing the last thing the state of Nevada wants you doing is dropping off. <laughs> that is specifically in this law. Right, exactly. all paperwork must be uh, in their preferred language and culturally appropriate. And uh, this is. You know, this is a reflection of a big problem, but again, it's another unfounded man mandate upon hospitals and emergency departments and their providers to get all this stuff together. Um, uh, Rick, Rick, I don't want to sound like a like a neo uh, conservative here, but the bottom line is, it should be no more the emergency doctor's problem than the plumber down the street or the the lawyer or the people working in offices i mean the bottom line is this cost is either going to be divided by the society in some way shape or form but it shouldn't fall on just the hospital and of course it never falls on certain kinds of hospitals it falls on those that have emergency departments that deal with uh, the poor. Yeah, I mean, they're not a lot. They're not a lot of rich homeless people, Rick. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because uh, there are some cities that are particularly attractive to homeless people because of the their rules, regulations, and Santa Monica is one of them. And Santa Monica, in terms of real estate, and it's it's uh, the People's Republic of Santa Monica is what they call it, but you know the climate is there, uh, both weather-wise and and socially, um, and so, and yes, there are definitely hospitals that are 
uh, inner city. Los Angeles County Hospital, definitely inner city hospital. Uh, other hospitals, uh, St. Francis Hospital in Linwood, is, is, and their mission is to serve the poor. It's by the nuns, and, the, and they've done this terrific job for all of these years. But I don't know that there's a lot of it at uh, Cedar sinai to tell you the truth. Right. I, may, I may be jumping the gun here, you know. <laughs> Right. You know, uh, we're not giving uh, crap to the people at Cedar sinai I mean, it's a wonderful institution and a great hospital. Uh, but it, it, I think it just points out that the burden is not shared equally. Oh, sure. And we've now decided because the emergency department is where these people go, they'll solve the problem. You know, if if Joe's plumbing and electrical supply shop, uh, they don't show up there. They don't have to give them, you know, three quarter inch copper pipe. They don't have to do things like that. So it is really not being fairly distributed amongst the population. It just isn't. Well, you know, it's like Mtala, another unfunded mandate. But the fact of the matter is, is that it is nice to know that anybody who goes into an emergency department will be looked at and screened independent of their ability to pay. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to uh, there. This is this next one is a really kind of uh, interesting case. Yeah. You mean the uh, liabilities associated with telephone consults? Yes. This is yes, uh, exactly. This is from the uh, uh, Minnesota Minnesota Star Tribune published May 27th of uh, this year. It's very, very current. And there's a whole bunch of uh, other internet um, articles on this case. Yeah, this is uh, this has to do with the Minnesota Supreme Court rules that a physician-patient relationship is not necessary to sue doctors for malpractice. Uh, what it's basically saying is a lot of other things can establish the relationship and they don't have to have walked in and seen you personally. They don't you don't have to have touched them. You don't have to have done certain things. This is important. Uh, Susan Warren was seen by an NP at a clinic. She had abdominal pain, fevers, chills, and an elevated white blood count and elevated glucose. The NP sought admission, but the hospitalist who was consulted at that local hospital did not advise admission. Following the, uh, this conversation, the NP did not pursue admission further. The patient died from sepsis caused by an untreated staph infection. Never a good thing, Rick, is to have tried to get somebody in the hospital. They go home and die. Suing the consulted hospitalist was allowed because the harm suffered was a reasonably foreseeable consequence of that physician's action. Now, let's think about this for a second. The hospitalist had not seen the patient. All he had seen or had, had dealt with was a report from an NP over the phone. 
this is an interesting extension of liability. And I'll tell you right now, I, I think that this should be read by a lot of consultants so that they know that they've got some other liabilities. Well, the Minnesota Medical Association is really concerned about this ruling because it, it's this not limited to things like an, a hospitalist on duty, but uh, it may even trickle down to casual conversations between physicians consult, talking about a patient um, where they may be curbside consults and the like. Right. Uh, so that's viewed as a uh, problem. Number uh, three we have on the docket here is emotional intelligence. You know, I've, I must admit, I've never heard this phrase before. Now, I, I know people out there are going are to be absolutely shocked about, by my lack of cognizance of this concept. But this was an important paper. It was in JAMA Surgery, January 30th of this year. And it points out that less than 1.5% of medical errors due to negligence lead to litigation. And you know that. I mean, yes. if you were a, 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 a bug on the wall of most hospitals, you could make a very nice living, you know, uh, doing malpractice plaintiff cases. Well, just on me, Rick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See, you know, I went back there because, you know, everybody in the hospital who's sick enough needs to have another doctor orchestrating the operation kind of here and making sure that, you know, the right hand knows what the left hand's talking about here. Have you seen all of these screw ups that happen? And they happen yeah. to sick people of all people. They're the least people able to tolerate. Anyway, the quality of a patient's relationship with the clinician is considered to be, you know, very important in their decision to sue. At least that's what they say. I'm, I'm not so sure that that's the case. There's a growing literature indicating that the minority of physicians generate the majority of malpractice suits. Well, we've kind of seen some of that. Well, you know, we've looked at this from Hicks, I think is his name, who's at um, Vanderbilt and some of these people who've reported this for years, that it's two, one or two percent of the docs who have 50 percent of the complaints and 50 percent of the lawsuits. I, I don't think that this should be viewed as anything unusual. You can pick out those doctors who are going to have trouble with patients. And those are the same people who, when, when the patients are disappointed, uh, those are the people they want to go after. Those are the people they 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 want to hang the, they, you know, they want to hold them up and and scalp them uh, in a lawsuit. And I don't think there's anything odd about that. Humans are like that. If you don't like somebody, you're willing to get even with them. Although you know, we did do the detailed study done by U.S. Acute Care Solutions when they reported their outcomes and. Uh, it was not really the case in emergency medicine, at least in that large database of like 10 million patients, that there was one doctor causing all of the problems. Um, no, no, that's true. But so there, I think there's some exaggeration here. They basically say that physician characteristics are the most important drivers of lawsuits. No, I think medical errors are the most common drivers of lawsuits. Yeah, um, <laughs> and bad outcomes are also yeah, yeah, a yeah. driver. 
Yes. They say one study indicates that 1% of physicians account for 32% of paid malpractice claims. Now, remember, this is in JAMA surgery. They also point out physicians with low emotional intelligence are thought to be the most prone to suits. Now, what's low emotional intelligence? Emotional intelligence is defined as the individual's ability to monitor and regulate his or her emotions as well as the emotions of others. Emotional intelligence encompasses the full range of interactions between individuals and societies, including self-awareness, social awareness, self-regulation, and situational management. It means that you have the ability to sense what the heck is going on uh, from a, uh, a situational uh, standpoint and can appro- appropriately respond so that you don't get angry inappropriately uh, where there's a big trickle down because you should have just hold your, held your held, bit your tongue. Uh, it's like clinicians with high emotional intelligence possess empathy. Uh, for uh, they, They're able to put patients at ease by authentically validating their pain, experience, or loss and providing genuine understanding and comfort. Let's let's think about this for just a second. This is not just uh, true with physicians. Oh, sure. This is true with all humans. There are some people who have a sense of what's happening around them, what's going on in the the world. And then there's another group of humans who don't have a clue about what's happening. Would you say that that's fair, Rick? Yeah, this is about emotional intelligence as it relates to physicians and and complaints and malpractice. Uh, yeah. So basically, these you know people who have the ability to say the right thing virtually all the time. Uh, yeah. You know, they're not the bull in the china shop kind of thing. They don't fly off the handle. They think about what's going on. They think about the consequences of their actions. And that's called, in a a phrase, emotional intelligence. Studies show a direct correlation between complaints against the physician and lawsuits. So they say, in one study, 9% of the physicians generated 50% of the complaints. In another study, 3% of the physicians generated 49% of the complaints. They said that one study found that physicians in the lowest third of patient satisfaction ranges experienced the mal, uh, 110% the malpractice rate of those in the top third. You know, I'm willing to bet that all of this is changing over the last 30 years. You and I remember when when we started in medicine, the older bull surgeons who would throw instruments, yell at people, uh, were rude, crazy, that sort of thing. All that's disappeared Nobody's putting up with that anymore in anybody's hospital. And the bottom line is they can hire plenty of surgeons. Uh, techs and nurses are tough to get. So, so if there's somebody out of control, uh, the, 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 the nursing director is going to get rid of those people. I've never seen so much activity in this area in my career, Rick. Uh, where people are willing to come down on docks for not being, how should I put this, good team players, 
Uh, it's not that you have to keep your mouth shut on everything, but you got to know where to do it and who to do it with and when to do it. Um, I think this is probably a good thing. I don't, I don't see this as necessarily bad. No, no, this is, yeah. Um, they say complaints against physicians are not about the quality of care, but rather relate to demeanor uh, issues, rude, disrespectful, and did not listen. Uh, so bottom line, Greg, is, you know, you and I were directors of emergency departments. Frankly, I don't want doctors there who are getting complaints uh, about, about from patients. And, you know, I, 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 I know I'm going to be taken to task for this. I know it. But there are physicians who constantly bitch about the fact that they are subjected to patient satisfaction surveys. And um, the, the fact is, put yourself in their position. Put yourself in the waiting room chair. Put your family there. Greg, you had an opportunity to experience the medical system, but you went to a hospital where you were the, had been the ER doctor. You're not getting the same care as Joe Blow kind of thing. But I think I still stand by the fact that I think that everybody should have an organ removed every five years uh, so yeah. that you can... <laughs> You can be on the other side of the bed rail. Um, yeah, just so you can watch it. Uh, there is no question uh, that if I look back over my career as a director uh, in those 25 years, I dealt with uh, human interaction questions 10 times as often as I did scientific questions. If there was a guy who gave too much ceftriaxone or too little, that pretty much you show them in the book and it's taken care of. It's the human interaction questions, which never go away. And, you know, I'd like to think I could lead and help and straighten some of these people out. There are actually a few people I had to let go. <laughs> and, and, and the fact is this human intelligence, this emotional intelligence is not doesn't has nothing to do with how well you did in organic chemistry class. Zero, zero. They don't have anything to do with each well, you other. You know, one of the things that uh, is is pointed out in this paper is those people who have high emotional intelligence <clears throat> are generally likely to be enjoying their practice because they're getting the feedback from the patient that is gratifying to them. Um, the patients are not a pain in the butt. You know, it's, it's not, uh, oh God, here's another one kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, that does get into the conversation about burnout and the like, which we won't go to. Hey, Greg, let's, let's move on to, uh, um, I wanted to tell you about, yeah. about, MedMal Reviewer. MedMalReviewer.com is a, is a service that is produced by Eric Funk, Dr. Funk. Eric Funk. And <clears throat> he and I connected, and he has this service where if he goes into cases in great, great detail by showing you the actual records that uh, are talked about, the, 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 the depositions, the medical records, the, the, the details of these cases in great depth. MedMalReviewer.com. Check it out. Now, uh, Eric has That's, agreed to give us uh, some 
distilled version of his cases. And so you've got the first Let's one. Let's do Greg. this uh, first one. And uh, shortness of breath. A 31-year-old with two days of shortness of breath, cough, fever, upper back pain that is worse on breathing. So it's pleuritic pain. Uh, heart rate, 136. Now let's stop for a second. Yeah, no, we don't like that. Blood pressure, 157 over 107. Temp, 102.8. O2 sat, 97. The CBC and the uh, metabolic panel were essentially unremarkable, whatever that means. And the uh, patient has an elevated D-dimer. Now, I don't get a D-dimer on everybody. There must have been some reason why this 31-year-old had a D-dimer taken. Yeah, watch uh, where this goes. Yeah, the, the chest X-ray is clear. Uh, uh, bilateral ultrasound of the legs is negative. Uh, but patient is too big to go in the CT machine. That's for a uh, CT pulmonary angiogram that they ordered. Right, exactly. Uh, and the diagnosis is that they have bronchitis. <laughs> the diagnosis is I can't get in the machine. Right. I don't exactly. have a diagnosis. They were treated with uh, Toradol, Norflex, uh, Tylenol, doxycycline. Throw the book at them. I'm not sure exactly why this combination was, was used, but 18 days later, the patient has worsening shortness of breath elevated episodes of syncope, not a good sign. Uh, the ambulance took, <laughs> took the patient this time to a better hospital. Is that, is that right, Rick? Those, those, those are my notes. <laughs> yes, they arrested on the ambulance ramp and uh, autopsy showed right and left main pulmonary artery PEs and uh, there was money that changed hands on this case, Rick. This was a $2.75 million case. Um, this is not a good thing. Well, you know, I think that there were a couple things here that uh, are uh, interesting. First of all, this patient had 102.8 fever. I personally was not aware that a PE could cause a fever and certainly a fever of 102.8. Well, it turns out that in the 2000, the January 2000 issue of Chest, they did a review of the PIOPAID data, and they found 14% of 311 patients with no other source of fever had a fever with their PE. That's one in seven. But not very many at all had a fever of 102. Yeah. Five out of 311 and no other source. So this is a unfortunate that this poor doctor got, you know, wrangled into this thing. Although they're, they're going down the path of ordering the D-dimer, the CT pulmonary angiogram. It's like, and now you have a mechanical issue. But are there any other tests that could be done? Could there be a, and I think they were, the fever threw them off. I think the bilateral ultrasounds of the legs threw them off. But you can get pelvic um, clots that are not showing up in your leg, uh, leg uh, scans. So there's some curveballs here, but the, the 
there's substantial evidence that this guy was looking for a PE, and when the machine was an issue, you know, there maybe they could have sent him someplace else, or maybe they could have done a lung scan because they had yeah, I, he had a normal chest X-ray, and the guy's young. Right. It's, it's it would be odd to see somebody with a respiratory complaint a normal chest X-ray, and the chest X-ray is doesn't show the infection, doesn't show the this, doesn't show the that. The next question is, what else do you do well, these to are, show what's going on here? These are perfect yeah. patients for lung scans. Young person, normal chest X-ray, you can do a lung scan. Now, I don't know how quickly a lung scan is able to be, be done. The size of the hospital may matter. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't look good when there was a clear pathway orders were put in d-dimer right. ct pulmonary angiogram ultrasound of the legs and because you cannot get the definitive study you just say bronchitis so you know it's i know it's easy to be a monday monday morning cornerback on this i know that um but this is what happened and so this is what we're doing this is about risk management this is so now you know fever pe yep. watch out uh, this is another case from Eric. Um, fever, cough, and back pain. 36-year-old with fever with dry cough and two weeks of body aches. Had previously been to the urgent care center where the diagnosis of, was, of course, bronchitis. And, uh, oh, by the way, asthma. By the time he came to the ED, he had uh, neck stiffness and, body, uh, and back pain. Neck stiffness and back pain. Every test you could think of was ordered. <laughs> except the two that mattered, a SED rate and an MRI. Now, that's obviously my editorializing. Obviously. <laughs> All labs are normal except platelets were 61,000 and glucose was 245. The exam, back exam, some reproducible left paralumbar tenderness to palpation, no midline warmth swelling or uh, no warmth, redness, or swelling, midline. Lower extremities moved well, negative straight leg raising, no swelling or rashes. Lumbar puncture was normal. Yeah. He was discharged with the diagnosis of viral meningitis. Don't you have to have some kind of cells in there for that diagnosis? You're supposed to if you're going to call it viral <laughs> meningitis. That's then the correct. other diagnosis was thrombocytopenia, which is not a diagnosis. That's another way of saying low platelets. It's just, a, you know, it's like that's not a diagnosis. Hyperglycemia, that's not a diagnosis. It's, that's, that means your blood sugar's high. Well, that's, what's the why? There's, where's the why? And he was given a follow-up appointment. Came back to the ED several days later. Platelets now are 119,000. Lactate's normal. Treat, treatment now is Percodan and Soma and sent out the door. At home, you develop weakness and sensory deficits of both legs. Okay, we're writing the check already. MRI, spinal epidural abscesses, teeth 9 and 10, complicated hospital course, residual paralysis, multiple lawsuits, confidential settlements, teeth 9 and 10. Um, you're not supposed to have thoracic back pain, although this guy said on the exam it looked like it was lumbar back pain. But thoracic back pain, mechanical thoracic back pain is not supposed to happen because the thoracic back is not mobile. The parts of the back that are mobile are where the mechanical issues are, lumbar, cervical. So uh, this, is a, this is just one more case 
spinal epidural abscesses, please, please, please have your antennas up. Gregory? You have we got some emails. Thoughts? Yes, we do. We have a, a, a nice bunch of them, actually. Yeah. All right. Uh, method of transfer to referral hospital. And for those of us who spent a lot of our career in smaller or medium-sized hospitals where we did have to refer things, this is always a problem. I honestly believe that most of the residents currently in our training programs are at big hospitals by by definition that's where residencies tend to be located and what they don't realize is that the decision to transfer yes or no can be extremely difficult uh we're presented a case of a small but busy rural ed uh, and it's got a single ambulance that covers the area around this hospital. Uh, the referral center is a quote-unquote great distance away. Now, I, I, I'm assuming this is in the country. We're talking like 30 miles, 40 miles, something real. Patients frequently decline ambulance transfer. And if you've never been in a small country hospital where they've just uh, denied transfer, first of all, they don't want to leave their community. Secondly, they don't want to go to that big center where they're going to be treated badly, all these other sorts of things. It does happen. And uh, halfway there, they'll refuse to complete the transfer. Here are the issues. Oftentimes, they change their mind even while they're on the road. Well, listen, this is this is a people who are refusing ambulance. They say, I'll, I'll go by car. I don't want, you know, I don't blame yeah. them. It's like $1,000 a mile on the ambulance kind of thing. They're going to give you oxygen, a paper gown, and a paper sheet, and put a monitor on you and charge you $1,000 when you have a sprained ankle. But in any case... Oftentimes, they change their mind, as we point out. Older doctors usually document the disposition as a EMTALA uh, transfer. And uh, sometimes you've got doctors who will, will, particularly young doctors, who will say that this was against medical advice. Now, be very slow using that phrase. When the patient has said, I'm not going, is it truly against medical advice? It may not be that unreasonable a decision on the part of the patient. But the question is, where are the medical legal, uh, uh, are there medical legal cases and uh, does this happen? Well, first of all, let me tell you, I've handled such cases. And what all what it always comes down to is, is discussion between the primary emergency doc, what he told the family, what he told the patients, what people can remember. Humans are allowed to assume risk for themselves. 
they're allowed to understand that, you know, they're going to get a bill. If they want to do it a certain way, it's okay. But somebody has to explain the consequences of this. And I guess I I am enough of a control freak, Rick, that if I think you need to go by ambulance, I'm going to I'm going to make that case so such that the family can do nothing else but follow that recommendation. Although I think the majority, or many, or at least a substantial minority of patients who are being transferred to another hospital do not need ambulance transfer, and Mtalid does not require ambulance transfer. There are some risks, that I, I think, though. First of all, um, are they going to get lost? You know, they've got this condition, and now they're and the family's taking them, but they don't really know where they're going exactly. It's a big city, Detroit, they're going to, to find this hospital that you're sending them to. And I think that, so that needs to be not an issue. They need, it needs to be very clear that they know where they're going. And I do think that if medically it's uh, not indicated that the ambulance offers them nothing that a taxi cab wouldn't offer them, then that be appropriate that they go by car. And I think that it's ethical that they go by car. You know, you'd like to, you know, get this off your your book and say, okay, fine, I'm going to call this ambulance. And they get this $2,000, $3,000 bill. They have no insurance kind of thing. They're, they're going to be taken to collections. Their life is going to be made m- miserable. When you made, frankly, an un- unethical decision, that they, they, yeah. they didn't need to go. Yeah, but I'll, I'll tell you this. I'd rather err on the side of a little caution here, Rick, uh, because if it can get screwed up, it will get screwed up. You know, I don't want them stopping for a cheeseburger uh, if what I think they need is to have their appendix out. Uh, you know, you, you'd like to think that people are going to do the intelligent thing. No, I got you. Yeah. But I, but I also can understand where, where there's financial issues here, and sometimes you just got to do the right thing. Oh, yeah. No question about it. Uh, but, but let's hope we get some buy-in from everybody who's there. If, if dad's there, if mom's oh, there, yeah. if grandpa's I there, I don't want somebody mad at me <laughs> over this decision. Here's an email. Uh, it was addressed, I like this, to Risk and Greg. My name is now Rick, <laughs> not Rick, it's Risk. Risk and I Greg. Like that. Isn't that cute? Yeah. Uh, their issue, and we discussed this before, Wyoming. Wyoming has a law that says you, can, you cannot hold people against the, their will if they are a danger to themselves or others just because they're drunk. And um, our sender sent a copy of the statutes, and that's what it says, basically. What recourse do they have to deal with these intoxicated patients safely? Their security officers will not restrain them, nor the police will will not arrest them unless they attempt to drive. So uh, you're kind of in a pickle here. You're supposed to do the right thing, and you're kind of handcuffed. What do you think, Greg? 
Yeah, I I think that, uh, I mean, I understand the Wild West nature of Wyoming. Uh, And I guess they assume that people are allowed to be intoxicated. But when these people do constitute a risk to others, then someone needs to take some responsibility. I can't believe that the local sheriff or police or something would not aid in preventing someone from doing something really stupid. Well, uh, it says, yeah, if you're going to get in your car, we'll, we'll, we'll arrest you. Well, what if you're going to get on your snowmobile? And that happens just as often well, in we'll Wyoming. Well, we'll arrest you then, too, because you're operating a vehicle intoxicated. But I'm concerned about you walking out into the into the cold there yeah. and getting hit by a bus because you don't have the sense to where to cross the street and how to cross the street. And that's exactly what happened to a patient at Harbor General Hospital. Um, and so... Some of this is real. Now, Wyoming seems to have a kind of a thing that says alcohol is uh, absolved from, uh, you know, causing you to be a danger to yourself, which is ridiculous. Um, but what if you thought they had meningitis? What if you thought that they had a, a, a subdural abscess? I, I mean, no, that's, that, it doesn't say that. It says if you're drunk. Well, what makes you think you can rule out one or the other here? And, and that uh, I, I, I dislike the concept that if someone, a family, brought someone to us uh, for, for their protection, for their diagnosis, we would do nothing I, th- I think that's morally reprehensible. But it's not that they're doing nothing. It's that these people want to leave and you can't hold them. So what can you do for a person who wants to leave? You can't hold them. The law says you can't hold them. Um, and I think there are a few things to do. And I've mentioned this before, and some of the listeners are probably tired about this, but take their clothes. Take their clothes. You know, they're not, most people, even if they're drunk, are not going to walk out with their genitalia hanging, swinging in the breeze there kind of thing. Unless they're homeless in Los Angeles and then (laughs) they would look like everybody else, Rick. You know, I think that that, I think that that's a very legitimate thing to do. Most people, when you get in a hospital, they want you to put in a gown and wear those clothes. Well, they're kind of someplace there. You, you just, they just, they just disappear. You know, they, what, we, we, what just, we used to do with problem patients was frequently get them a lunch. Yeah. Offer them, <laughs> you know, and basically ask them what they would like so that you're going to order it. It's going to take some time to get it kind of thing. You're not going to get a, give them one of those stale sandwiches out of your re- refrigerator in the emergency department. No, no, we're going to get you a nice meal from the cafeteria. Here's what they're having today. You know, we're going to, that's going to buy some time. What, what you're doing is trying to get the metabolism of alcohol, which is a straight line metabolism, down to a level that is basically going to allow this person to function. So right. you've got to buy time. So the clothes are gone. We sent them to the cleaner. We thought you could use a pressing. Uh, the food, we're going to get you some food uh, kind of thing. you got to let buy me tell, time. Let me tell you what bothers me the most is, there needs to be, wherever you work, 
a relationship with the security people, those officers, those uniformed people, as to exactly what they're going to become involved in. Because it's not just that they stop them from stealing stuff out of the drawers. Uh, they're supposed to be for their health care and, and, and their protection. I, uh, I had the best experiences at hospitals that had ex-policemen as uh, security uh, who knew how to take care of folks. And sometimes they had to hold them down and sometimes they had to help us restrain. And you know what? I never saw a family come to us the next day and say, oh, you stopped him from hurting himself. Oh, yeah. That that's, doesn't happen. That's obvious. But this fella points out that the security guards will not restrain an intoxicated patient. Yeah, They won't I, do it. So no. this, so Wyoming is uh, kind of like uh, I don't get it, but the fact of the matter is, is that uh, unless unless somebody wants to change the law, which is, you know, what kind of, you know, activist group are going to change the law like about this? So it's probably only going to be emergency physicians. So if you guys don't like it, you ladies don't like it, you got to talk to your legislators because this law is stupid. Yeah. Um, and I, I understand the civil liberty arguments here about allowing them to do what they want. But uh, if it's your father, if it's your brother, uh, it's different. Uh, oh, Rick, we have somebody who likes us. Here's a direct <laughs> quote. Here's a direct quote in an email. I love your program and have found it the most useful CME that has directly impacted the way I practice. This is. Um, did I get? Did I spell that right? You know, yes, I, yes. I wrote it. You know, no, no. no. You, you Actually, did a good job with this. No, uh, this, no, this is, is now they present us a complicated situation, but I want to distill it down to its essence. Our doctor, who's working alone at a critical access hospital and who is seeing a serious patient uh, present with, uh, no, well, it, another patient presents. Who's, who's had an ATV roll uh, over them. Uh, and again, if, you're, if you work in rural hospitals, it's not an odd situation. And the roll bar caused a compound fracture of the leg. Our doctor sees uh, a brief overview of the patient and checks out for a distal nerve and circulation. A telemedicine doctor takes over the case because he's busy working on the other case. A telemedicine doctor takes over the case for the next two hours and transfers the patient. Well, that's really you ever kind had of, that? Well, no, but, you know, we've talked about this on our EMA uh, courses that we're doing around the country because we did a half hour on telemedicine. And, Greg, there are some incredible things happening out there where – there's no. a there's a group in um, South Dakota that staffs something like 160 healthcare facilities where you will have a board certified ER doc at your beck and call instantly by pushing a bell a, a buzzer on the wall where all the cameras turn on and you you can hear the the consulting doctor the consulting doctor can see you 
and they are actually providing care just like this. Two hours of care provided by a telemedicine doctor, ordering tests, those kinds of things, packaging up this patient and sending them on a transfer. This is happening. So this is this is not a, a makeup kind of thing. So let's let's go on. All right. Now the doctor, the the one who's actually in the department, uh, the next day gets a note that the e uh, that the electronic medical record for the the other patient, the one that was transferred, is incomplete. Turns out the telemedicine doctor's note was very scant. And our doctor, despite performing a primary and secondary survey, also had not written a note. Bottom line, what should he do? Well, it's soon enough in time that the, uh, the doctor who was on the scene should write a note to the best of his ability. He should not lie. That is, he writes down what he can actually remember. But that's okay, because nobody else is going to have a better view of it than that doctor at that moment in time. And he did physically put eyes on the patient and do some examination. So to, to a very great degree, that second doctor has a perfect right to, to write a note, and it must indicate that it's done after the fact. You know, I'm writing this the next day, two o'clock in the afternoon. This is what I remember from that patient. And, you know, the one thing about it is it's honest. And that's that always goes well in court. Well, you know, I don't think it's any big deal. The the uh, this how many doctors do you know are charting after the patients that have gone home and they're and they're charting at home now because they can do it through their EMR. Well, this is guys charting the next day. It's, it's no big deal. So, and both of them need to chart. The doctor who took care of the patient for two hours, obviously the telemedicine doctor, he's got to, somebody who's got to ring his bell and say, you know, where's your charting? You've got to chart on this patient too. So both of them have the ability and the and the and the expectation that they're going to write a record consistent with what they did and saw. And yeah. I don't think it. You know, I think it's pretty straightforward. This Let is me put it out an appeal. Note. I want to put it out an appeal to anyone who's got telemedicine charts, legal cases. Uh, the case described here, where the one doc is seeing one patient, telemedicine is seeing another patient. I have never dealt with that as a legal case or problem. Uh, Rick, have you ever seen such a case? Well, no, this is a new phenomenon. And although this group in uh, South Dakota has been doing telemedicine for since 2009, I don't think that they've been doing it, you know, to the degree that they're doing it uh, and to the, um, to the complexity in that when they make an agreement with an ER to provide telemedicine backups, yeah. they, they can do triage. Those the ER doctor, the telemedicine doctor can do triage. They can they can they can care for patients. When they access this hospital, they know 
the phone numbers of all of the uh, appropriate consultants that they can call. They know where the what medicines this place has, where they have it, the equipment they have or don't have. And there's a profile for each hospital. So this is this is an extraordinary endeavor. And the, the idea of having a board-certified emergency physician at your beck and call when you work out in a rural hospital, you may be a family physician, you may be a PANP. Um, I think it's fabulous. I think it's I think it's I think it's terrific what they're yeah. what they're doing. I, th- I think it's Brave New World, and if we could get some actual cases where there's at least been an issue raised on that kind of care, I'd love to see it. Uh, we'd love to be involved in that because, again, this is the new world, and uh, we're going to see it with PAs and NPs. We're going to see it a lot of different places. And uh, Rick and I would very much like to be on the ground floor of some of these. So, so please send those kind of cases along. You got another case here, Rick? Yeah, we do, Greg. Uh, this is the one that I added this morning. This came in yesterday. And frankly, I've reviewed it. So if you don't mind, I'll just kind of go through it and you can yeah, chime in here. Um, this is about a young adult who presented to an ER with a first uh, suicide attempt, basically alcohol and pills. Uh, The patient openly admitted they wanted to commit suicide. The patient was cooperative and agreed to medical evaluation. There was no evidence of toxic ingestion. I don't know whether this is the result of a toxicology analysis or not, or acetaminophen, or I don't know what they took. And there was mild alcohol intoxication. Uh, The care was transferred to a second emergency physician. The nurse's notes claim the patient said she did not take enough pills, suggesting an intent was uh, to, to in fact commit suicide. She said, you know, I should have taken more pills. Uh, And that was in the nurse's note. They were evaluated. I would point out that most patients are not toxicologists. They don't know how much they should have taken to kill themselves. And I've heard that argument uh, a million times, both from our nursing staff who said they didn't take enough to kill themselves. Uh, that doesn't mean they didn't have an intent to kill themselves. Yeah. Um, so they had a psychiatric counselor come in to evaluate this person, and that counselor was uncomfortable about letting the patient go home. So that counselor asked for a, a second counselor to come in and consult to see whether they, what they felt about this in potential involuntary commitment. You realize in most places, by the time a second counselor comes in, it's morning. Yeah, well, that I, that, I, that involves that's involved in this case because yes, it involves a lot more time. The patient right. didn't want didn't want any further evaluation by the psychiatric counselor. After several hours, the patient sobered up and was uh, and wanted to be discharged. And how how often has that happened? You know, it's kind of like routine almost. Patients uh, did not want uh, anything further done. After several hours, uh, the the psych, second uh, psych eval is pending. It takes a while. Family member. And uh, some of the family members or attorneys are upset that the patient is being held in the ED. The family demands release and questions the 
law that would allow the patient to be held against her will. That's what they're asking of these, the second ER doctor here. You know, what gives you the right to do this? The emergency physician talks to the hospital risk management uh, person who is obviously a non-physician, and that person advised that the patient sign out AMA. <laughs> the ER doctor doesn't do it. Now, so you have a suicidal patient, and you're absolved by saying, here, sign out the AMA form. <laughs> it's like, that's great advice from risk management. You've got to have a hole in your head. Yes, yes, that's uh, that's that's just incredible to me. But I'll tell you, the one area where you have to be perfect in this case is your relationship with the family. Uh, family members who are already tense, upset, and are attorneys, if something goes wrong, they're going to be back on, on top of you. So... Uh, make friends with these people as best you can. Well, yeah, the idea is you're just trying to do the best for the uh, the patient, you know. That's all. That's all. So anyway, over this time, which has gone out hours now, the patient states the suicidal thoughts are gone and agrees to a contract for safety. The ER doc feels pressured to discharge and does so. So here are the questions that our writer asks. Are the statutes that allow a physician to hold someone uh, are they federal or are they state? They're state. And so, and frankly, you ought to know what they are because look at what we just talked about Wyoming. Wyoming said you can't hold, you know, a, a drunk person. Um, so I, I would definitely get a sense of what's the, the rule there. Question number two, why would the risk manager advise to have a potentially suicidal patient sign out against, against their will? Well, you know, it's just freaking bad advice. Um, they said, who is at fault if allowed to sign out AMA and something happens? Well, of course, the doctor's at fault. And by the way, do I have these cases? Oh, my God. I've got one where a young man, uh, about 20 years of age, was discharged to the family, got away from the family. He was a young pilot, went out to the airport close to Ann Arbor here, stole a plane, circled the airport, talking how nobody loved him and how the doctors didn't understand him, and then buried uh, that plane straight down into the center of the, uh, of the airfield. Uh, if you don't think that wasn't the case, and if you don't think the emergency doctor wasn't sued on that, you're wrong. And the parents were there, and 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 the emergency doc thought he had properly transferred the care of this young person to someone who cared. The third question that our writer asks is: Should an emergency physician discharge a patient after a suicide attempt and prior to completion of a psychiatric eval if the patient is no longer a suicidal, agrees to a contract for safety, and the patient? Uh, wants to be discharged. Well, you know, in my view, the person had two psychiatric evaluations. Our ER doctor did a psychiatric evaluation, the first one, the second one did, and time has gone by. So things things are not necessarily the same as when they came in. So yeah. I don't think you need to have, you know, a second psychiatric evaluation on top of your psychiatric evaluation. This person has clearly modulated. They're not intoxicated anymore. They've got 
a different view of things going on. The family wants them out of there. And what are you going to do? You're going to send them home. Yeah, let's be straight up about this. Uh, There is no one specialty that understands this better than any other specialty. Because you've called in a psychiatrist or in most places, it's a it's a psychologist, a mental health worker, something like that who comes in. Don't believe they understand uh, psychiatric disease better than you do. They don't necessarily. Secondly is you can only do so much in the best of hands with the best of people. We don't always get it right. Marilyn Monroe had a great psychiatrist. He was wrong. Uh, and, oh, and I th- there are a lot of cases where the psychiatrists are wrong. Right, exactly. And, and to think that we have total control of this uh, and that we have a right to take total control of this, very, very difficult concepts. You know, I think that documentation about how this is going and and, uh, the physician's perceptions are obviously very important so that if the physician thinks the person's safe, the patient says I'm safe, the family says they're safe, uh, uh, medically they're cleared from toxicological issues, you know, I think all you can do is do your best. We have yeah, a- and, and make sure you get the names of every family member there. Anybody who heard the discussion, anybody who got to take responsibility, who's going to take them the next day to see the family physician, who's going to take them here or there and what they're going to do. Because at a certain point in time, you can't take over every job on every patient. You just can't do it. Well, you know, I think the things that I think that uh, I have not emphasized in this case is, you know, have you called the psychiatrist on call? Is there a psychiatrist on call? Are they going to be able to see a psychiatrist, uh, to the, you know, the, the next day kind of thing? Um, I think that those are important issues and every hospital has psychiatrists on staff. And the fact of the matter is, is I hate to say it, but these people, if they're getting lawyers in the family, they have money, they got insurance kind of thing. So um, that impediment, which is substantial may be gone. And I think you, I think you're obligated to call a psychiatrist and, and at least go through the motions of trying to get them to follow up on this patient, uh, you know, the next day kind of thing. Greg, let's yep. let's do uh, let's do one quickie, and then we'll uh, wrap it up with the wine of the month. Do you have a wine? Are you have have you been able to generate a wine of the month, Doctor? Yes, this will be the first month where we do not have a wine of the month because I had laid several out for tasting, and then I went into the hospital, and you know they frown on you bringing wine into the hospital and drinking it. Yeah, they but you really were in, do. you were in a nice hospital. You got a menu. You could order from the <laughs> menu. You know, did you have a Beaujolais on there? You know, yeah, your... the, the, well, the, certainly nothing I would pass on to our listeners, Rick. 
Well, in any case, let's do this one about lawsuits against uh, direct-to-consumer telemedicine providers. So you know there's this phenomenon, and a lot of insurance companies are encouraging their insured to call a telemedicine doctor whenever you're thinking of going to urgent care or, the, uh, God forbid, the emergency department. And some doctor will come on the screen who's uh, on the beach in uh, Cancun and uh, talk to you about your runny-nosed kid or something like that because actually there's a, a great large preponderance of these are about kids and their moms and I'm going to work and it's now it's uh, six, 7 o'clock in the morning and give me some advice or it's 6 o'clock at night and I don't want to go to that horrible ER where I have to wait all day. So um, there's a there's a boom in this telemedicine stuff where people are directly accessing doctors to talk about all kinds of things. There, You can get a telemedicine for dermatology, psychiatry, you name it. There's a telemedicine doctor out there. So have there been any lawsuits? And, you know, I've been very curious about this because the last I heard in telemedicine, all you can really do except for teledermatology is talk to the patient or talk to the parent. How are you going to examine that kid? Okay, fine. You look in the screen and you see nasal flaring and intercostal retractions. Okay, I got it. But, you know, are you going to be diagnosing the strep throat the or lack of strep throat, the otitis, viral, bacterial? How are you going to do that? And I really believe that there's this is such a temptation here to give out antibiotics excessively. But I, that's my bias. But anyway, have there been any lawsuits and uh, this is an article, April 2nd, 2019, in JAMA, of all places. They looked at the Nexus Nexus database for uh, any court cases as of November 2018, and there were no court cases that involved telemedicine, none, zero. Now, of course, only about a quarter of cases that are malpractice cases are going to go to court, uh, and probably even less than that. And there's all kinds of these other settlements, arbitration and other kinds of things that are going to mean that things may have happened badly, but they just didn't happen to go into this database. So I'm surprised a little bit, but, you know, there's going to be millions more visits, uh, telemedicine visits coming up. And uh, at least for now, they don't, uh, no, no cases. Now, they also point out in this article that Telemedicine people are pretty smart. They've got policies that limit their risk of, uh, with regarding to the care they provide. They generally, you know, they're not going to do any opiates, that's for sure. And there's usually clear instructions about the limitations of what they're able to offer and that you need to follow up with, a, go to the ER, or go to your family doctor if things are not getting better or if they're getting worse or any new symptoms are developing. They got all those caveats in there. Check the box here <clears throat> on your computer screen. Uh, so they're they're clever themselves, and as appropriately so in terms of limiting their their risk, they're doing and they're, what they can. And it's self-selected, Rick. Uh, those people, if a family member is there and they're carrying on conversation, they obviously don't think the patient is that is doing badly, or they would have sent them to the emergency department. They would called an ambulance. They would have done lots of other things. So I think we, we may have found the sweet spot uh, in disease 
where someone is concerned, but they're not frantic or panicked or something along those lines. It sounds to me like what's being passed out here is reassurance as opposed to uh, Nobel Prize winning science. Yeah, I think that uh, they're they're calling to get the advice of a physician, somebody who's likely to know, you know, be able to give decent advice. And so yes. that's that's all they're that's all they're doing, I think. And um, I don't think they're claiming to do any examination of the ears or throat or any of those other kinds of things. Uh, it's basically all historical. Uh, okay, Greg, yeah, you have survived the May issue. A risk management monthly man, and I'm proud of you. Well, you, thank you, you very much. And and we promise all uh, listeners that within the next two weeks we're going to cut the June issue and uh, get it out to you just as soon as we can. But uh, so for the month of May, and now that we've actually technically entered the month of June. Uh, this is uh, Greg Henry and Rick Bucata saying so long for now. Yeah, bye-bye. And Greg, they did a nice job of resuscitating you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>